Good morning, Blossom Valley Bible Church, or good afternoon, or whatever time it is that you're watching this video. It gives me great pleasure to introduce a special guest speaker. Uh, his name is Ted Vandenberg. Ted Vandenberg has been a fireman for 30 years, and he currently serves as the battalion chief for the fire department in Mountain View, California. Ted is a committed Christian and a, a recent graduate of the Rawlings School of Divinity at Liberty University. Ted picked up a degree in theology and Bible, and he lives out his faith by staying committed to prayer, by leading his wife and his family uh, to love the Lord. He leads a workplace Bible study, a neighborhood Bible study, and his home church's Bible study. Very involved, very involved. Ted has extensive experience speaking and teaching in the fire service, as well as many years serving his church. He's taught the spectrum from Sunday school, vacation Bible school, men's group, and delivering Sunday sermons. Ted is heavily involved in, in global outreach. Uh, he's been to the Philippines, and he uh, taught at a mission there. And most recently, he went to communist Cuba uh, to minister to the Cuban brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, Ted is happily married to his high school sweetheart, Wanda, and they are celebrating 40 years of marriage. They have four children and four grandchildren. Now, normally I would say let's give him a warm Blossom Valley Bible welcome, but you're going to be left to do that in, in the comfort of your own home. So please open your hearts and your minds to Mr. Ted Vandenberg. Well, my name is Ted Vandenberg, and I am very happy and pleased and honored to have the opportunity to speak today and bring the gospel. Um, my hope and prayer today is through this sermon that, that we'll be able to illuminate the, the scriptures to you um, to see how God is our Father. In fact, that's the title of the sermon today, is God the Father. But if you would allow me just a moment to tell a joke I'd appreciate that, because as you may or may not have heard, I've spent 30 years in the fire service. And in the fire service, as a fire chief, I don't necessarily make the best public speaker. But I want to ask you a question. Do you know? Do you know who makes the best public speakers? They say that cardiac surgeons make the best public speakers. And why? Why do cardiac surgeons make the best Public speakers? Well, simply because nobody else can touch as many hearts as they can. All right. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's the last, first and last joke I'm going to say today, for sure. But with um, the sermon today, God the Father, we're going to go to Psalms 103. That's a Psalm of David. And if you could turn your Bible there and read along with me, we're going to start there. But first, we're going to start in prayer. Heavenly Father, our good, good Father, we pray that you would be with us today as we're in your word, that you, by the power of your spirit, will illuminate the word, that you would open our hearts and our minds to it, that you would teach us, instruct us, um, and give us both encouragement and give us um, a view of how we relate to you and see you as our Father, our good Father, our perfect Father. Help us in your word today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so with that, let's go to Psalms 103, starting at verse 1. Praise the Lord, my soul. All my innermost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your sins and heals your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit, crowns you with love and compassion. Who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. The Lord works righteousness and justice for the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. 
The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us, he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. As a father, a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. He knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it's gone. And its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him. And his righteousness with their children's children. With those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven. His kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, all you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly host, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord. My soul. When we read Psalm 103 and we read it in light of God as our Father, it can really, for me, resonate. Resonate my relationship to my Father. And in light of that, I want to ask you this question. I want to ask you, what is the single most important thing about you? In light of the Psalms we just read, in light as God is your Father, what is the most important thing about you? Is it what you do for a living? Is it the number of friends that you have? I can tell you it's not the level of your education. The most important thing about you is not what other people think about you. It's not your gifts or abilities. It's not about what you own or don't own. The most important thing about you is not what you've done or what you haven't done. I guarantee you the most important thing about you is not your good looks, your smarts, your passion. It's not your reputation. It's not even the level of happiness in your life. Nope. The single most important thing about you is what you perceive, what you imagine about God when you think about God. Because it impacts your life, how you live your life out, how you comprehend him, what's your understanding of him, of his character, how you feel towards him. In other words, it's your relationship with him because it defines you, your worldview. Your worldview shapes how you live out life. Do you think of God as complex and personal? Or do you see him as one-dimensional? Uh, let, me, let me give you an illustration. Um, you know, years ago, there was a running joke about Star Trek. If an unknown character on the TV series is wearing a certain uniform, a certain color of a uniform, I think it was red, they're wearing a red shirt that day, in that night's episode, they probably were going to be that cast member that wasn't going to make it to the end of the show. That person was probably going to get eaten by a rock monster or shot by a laser beam or some mishap was going to befall them, but it didn't disturb you if they passed during the show because he was just a guy in a red shirt. His character was simple. There was no personal engagement. You really didn't know who... He was. He was one-dimensional. He was like a cartoon figure, if you will. So when you think about God, 
How do you imagine him? Do you image him as uh, one-dimensional? People will say this, my God is a God of love. Or my God is a judicial God. He's a God of justice and law. Pastor Tim Keller, he asks this question. He says, how do you see God? As one-dimensional? In other words, do you imagine God as a God as a caricature? God with no personal engagement? Do you see God as some force of energy or God who is a stern judge? Or is he a God who's a wonderful, loving friend? Or the unmoved mover, the cause of all there is? Many people have a view of God that is flat. They choose a one-dimensional God. They choose from many metaphors. As your God, you lose, and when you do do that, I'm sorry, uh, they say, that's my God. But when you take one metaphor as your God, then you lose the totality of God. You lose the ability to really engage with him as he is, complex and personal. So, If you've chosen a loving God who never judges or never punishes anyone, or if you have a holy God who you must work very hard and be very good to please or else he will smite you, if you have any of these gods, then it's possible that you don't have the biblical biblical God. And there won't be any personal engagement with him. The biblical God is complex. He's a complex God. The biblical God is love. Yep. He is a friend, yes. He is judge, and he is fearsome. So I ask you, what is the main image of God presented in the Scripture? In fact, what is the main image of God presented by Christ Jesus? It's not the only image, but it is the chief image. Look, I think it's important that we see God in his entirety and remember that Scripture presents him so that we know that God is king. He is infinite. He is a God that is all-powerful, ever-present, all-knowing, the ruler of the universe. He is the God of justice. He's the Alpha and Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's the God of hope, God of eternal life. He's He's immortal, invisible, the only wise God. He's the creator of heaven and earth. He is merciful. He is the great I am. He's the almighty living God. And yes, God is love. God is all these images. He is a real God. He's not just one dimensional. These images are reality. We read them in scripture But Jesus emphasized over and over one characteristic of God that we should resonate with us. Because the number one image of God that Jesus draws for us again and again is this. God is a father. And he is the perfect father. He's a good father. We see him and we know him as a father that is patient. He's kind and generous. He's a father that gives you grace. He's a father who teaches you, molds you to conform to the image of our Savior. He's a father who reproves you. He disciplines us. Because he instructs us in righteousness out of his love. He's a father you can always trust and know you are secure in his arms. He forgives over and over again. He is a father who desires to spend time with you constantly. He listens to you. He understands you. He answers you. He is a father who will never leave you. He is a father who will never deny you. He is a father who will never forsake you. He is loyal. He's loyal to you and me even when we fail him. He's a father who protects you, provides for you, He leads you by the hand through your darkest times. He wants the best for you. 
He wants you to be the best you can be. He is a father of devotion. He's a father of devotion to you, and he has made the most remarkable sacrifice for you out of his abundant love. And you call him Abba, Abba Father, because he is the good, good father. Now, if you have wounds in your lives because you were raised by a less than perfect father, you're not alone. If your image of God the Father is tainted because of your earthly dad, because of his weakness, I want you to know we can still take truths from this image as God as Father because we all know the Father that we desired, the Father we yearned for, quite frankly, the Father we needed. And I've heard, I've seen, I've experienced Stories about absent fathers and abusive fathers, emotionally distant fathers, commanding or demanding, controlling fathers, all of which can negatively impact our perception or our image of what we think about our Heavenly Father. But we need to reach past that, past our less than perfect earthly fathers, to see how our God is our greater Father, our Heavenly Father, who gives us all things pertaining to life and godly, a godly life or godliness. If you will, turn to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to read Matthew chapter 7, 7 through 11, because we're going to see Christ Jesus preaching, teaching about this very thing, about fathers. And when you get there, you'll see this. Matthew 7, 7 says, Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. (laughs) Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will you give him a snake? If you then... Though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Now notice that Jesus says of these men, if you then, though you are evil. What he's saying here is this, is that all fathers, as all mankind in general, are natural born sinners. We have a sin nature. We do the things we ought not to do. We're broken. We're faulty men. We must all remember that we have all fallen short of the glory of God. Now, in this verse, Jesus uses the argument, it's taken from the lesser, that's men, to the greater, that's God from the lesser of fathers to the great and perfect father, God. And it goes like this, that if you, who are but men, and all men have us in nature, evil on earth, not are not natural givers, but actually covetous and greedy, if you, as the scripture says, quote, know how to give good gifts to your children, that is, you can find in your hearts to give from your resources, proper support, meet the needs of your children, If lesser men can do this, then our greater heavenly Father, quote, how much more shall your Father, which is in heaven, your Father, who is omniscient, that is, all-knowing, and omnipotent, that is, all-powerful, who knows our needs, my needs and your needs, the very things we need to survive. He knows the wants of our hearts. God the Father, who knows what's proper for us, is able to give it to us because he is the Lord of heaven and earth. The scripture goes on and says, quote, give good things to them that ask him. We're not talking just temporal things like food and shelter 
and safety and clothing. But we're talking about spiritual good things. Every supply of grace. All pertaining to life and godliness. If we go to Luke chapter 11, 13, we see this same picture of Christ teaching the same thought, except it has one additional portion to it. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The Holy Spirit. See, God gives his gifts and graces everything that is necessary for spiritual and eternal good of his children. But we must ask, right? We must seek after. It's the least we can do as his children, is do is to ask for them. And we have encouragement enough to do that because we know, we have confidence that he is our father, and when we ask, we have. You see, God is our greater father, and the scriptures are replete with this image. Scripture is filled with references to God as our Father, and I just want to review a few of my favorites. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 says, For us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. In Ephesians 4 it says, One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Or about Isaiah From the Old Testament, 64 says, But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. And we are the work of your hand. John 14.6 For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Let's take Romans chapter 8, verse 15. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 2 Corinthians 8, 16. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. My personal favorite of all, 1 John 3, 1. See See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. (laughs) I have to ask, what is your relationship with God? What do you think when you think about God? Do you think of him as your father? There are two basic ways to relate to God. And I want to try to illustrate that for you. Now, this is broad stroke stuff. Um, I know there could be a lot of nuances to it. But let me try to illustrate. When you relate to other people, your standing with them is very important. For instance, a stranger is not allowed to eat from your plate, right? I think we can all see that. In fact, I once saw this candid camera episode when they decided to film what would happen in a diner if a stranger would start to eat off another stranger's plate. So they hid their cameras, they put them in the diner, and they put it at the countertop where strangers could come up to stools and sit next to each other as their food was served. They would sit next to each other, and when the food would arrive, the person working for Candid Camera would be seated next to the person with their food and would casually reach over. They'd pull a french fry or they'd pull a pickle or they'd pull a bun off the stranger's plate. The stranger's reactions were always one of anger. It was on a spectrum. For instance, it could be just an angry look or push their plate over to the uh, candid camera guy. But one... One was so angry, he picked up, and back in those days, the ketchup bottle, which was glass. And if it wasn't for the staff yelling and saying it was a joke or it was candid camera and grabbing the guy as he lifted that ketchup bottle, I think the poor candid camera staff guy would have been beaten over a french fry. But you can see, 
the standing, our standing makes a difference in how we relate to people because here's my point. My children, my grandchildren, my wife routinely take food from my plate. Sometimes it's the best part of my dessert. But I don't pick up a bottle of ketchup out of anger. No. They help themselves to my plate because of their standing with me. They're family. They feel safe. They're loved. They're valued. We have a relationship. It's because of our relationship, and it's it's who they are to me. Family. So do you relate to God as your father? What is your standing with him? Are you standing with him as a child? Because there's an, another way of relating to God. It's on a transaction basis. In other words, is your standing with God one of performance? I will perform for you, God, but I expect that you perform for me. In other words, God, I will give you obedience. I'll follow your rules. I'll show you deference. But I have an expectation in return. In some manner, you'll provide me with goods and services. It's like a business. It's based on performance. Now we can see this in friendships even. I have a friend, Joe. Joe likes to borrow my motorcycles, my dirt bikes. And in return, he lets me borrow his RV. And everything is good. Until Joe is a one-way street. He uses and damages my motorcycles. And every time I want to use his RV, it's never available. How long do you think that friendship will last? It's based on performance. You do for me and I'll do for you. We see it between coworkers. I'll help you with my workload. You help me with my, your, well, I'll help you with your workload. You help me with my workload. You know, in the fire service, after 30 years in the fire service, we, we'll work shifts for each other, 24 hour shifts. And I'll say to someone, I'll work a shift for you. And later, you go ahead and work a 24-hour shift for me. And everything's good until the person that you worked for just can't find the time to pay you back. It's based on performance, even that relationship. But look, we, we see it when um, in, in, in business performance as well. We see it between employer and employee. And basically what the employer says I'll pay you, I'll pay you, pay in benefits, if you provide goods and services. And you see, we can relate to God in performance, like a business relationship. I keep your rules, and you save me, God. I, I attend church every Sunday. Maybe I teach Sunday school. Maybe I've kept myself pure from the sins of the world, sexually pure. I've done all these things, Lord, and now I have expectations of you, God, to give back. I expect health, wealth, prosperity. So in very broad strokes, we can say there are two basic ways to relate to God, two types of standings that you can have, one like a business relationship, that is contingent on performance, or one as a family, as his child, a permanent, committed relationship. Pastor Tim Keller develops this further, and I'm going to use his analogies because I think they're pretty powerful. He draws this comparison. He says there are two basic ways you can live in somebody's house. You can be a boarder or a renter, or you can live in someone's house as a child. The two standings are either in a business relationship or in a family relationship. The border is in a business relationship with the landlord, right? You have a home and you're going to rent a room out in your home. So that's a business relationship. And if you're living in the owner's home, you can have, the two of you can have a good relationship as long as the border pays the rent, respects your property, follows the rules. And you, if you're the landlord, the owner of the home, well, you have expectations that are placed upon you as well, right? The landlord has obligations. Got to keep the power on. Got to maintain the home. 
Got to keep the water running, etc. So there's a standing. There's a standing of relationship, an interchange, goods and services. It's a business relationship. You keep your end of the bargain, the contract. I'll keep, I'll keep my end of the bargain. A relationship, business relationship is a conditional one. A family relationship is unconditional. A business relationship is based on what you have, your performance. It's conditional. Family relationship is based on what I am. I am a child, a child of the owner. It's unconditional. One has to do with your doing. The other has to do with your being. When you live in your parents' home, you are not a boarder. You're not a renter. You're a child. This is the other side of the paradigm, right? First paradigm, business relationship. You perform, you'll be accepted. Second paradigm, family relationship. Since you are accepted, you should perform. You can try to relate to God in a performance relationship, but this is what we call pharisaical. It's not what God wants or requires of you. In fact, it's a false religion. Or you can relate to God as your father, as his child, trusting him in faith. Because trusting God the Father is an essential element of true and saving faith that looks to God to find peace and strength, contentment, and much, much more in him. And all that he's done is doing and will do both now and forever in his son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's do a self-assessment, if you will. How can I tell whether I am relating to God on a business basis How can I tell if I and what kind of standing with God I have? Is it based on performance? If we do this assessment, I'm going to ask some questions and just answer them in your mind. One is, am I following God's rules? Am I obedient to his law in expectation of getting from him later? Expectation of getting blessings. Salvation? Or do I just do the minimum in worship and praise and prayer and service to his kingdom? Just enough to meet the terms of the relationship. Is living a life set apart that is different from the world? Holy, virtuous, pure. Is it out of obligation? I'm just doing it because that's what we got to do. This is performance. Rather than a willingness with enthusiasm for being his own little one, gratitude for being his son or daughter, do I act as if I'm dedicated, you know, like the hired hand does? Hired hand is dedicated just to get through the day, and after the day's done with the work, they're not dedicated anymore. Rather than truly being dedicated in heart, mind, soul, and strength to the one who loved me first, God the Father. Hmm. Am I going through the motions of religion? Rather than understanding God has called me to his family, his mission, and life as his child? And the next two, and the last two, are very illuminating. These assessments. How do I respond to adversity? How do I respond to pain and trials? Am I angry because God is not living up to his end of the bargain? Do I feel guilt? This is the last one. Do I feel guilt for not doing my part? Not performing my failings? Am I anxious over my guilt? Worried because... I haven't kept my part of the bargain, and now I'm going to get thrown out. Or do I feel self-hate because I'm just not keeping the rules? I'm not performing. The last two assessments, they're very revealing. 
If life is not going well for you and you've prayed asking God to change something in your life, but he doesn't come through for you and you become angry because you say, I've been a good person. I've been paying the rent. I've been doing my part. God, why aren't you doing your part? Do you see it? Do you see your standing with God? But also there's the failing. There's the guilt. You say, I haven't been a good person. I haven't paid the rent. Of course he isn't answering my prayers. He's not responding. I haven't performed. What's coming for me next? In both cases, it should illuminate to you that you're standing the way you're looking at God. Well, quite frankly, you're more of a border than you are a child. At the fundamental level, you relate to God as a business standing based on your performance. You got your duties, and he's got his. Well, I want us to see why we, we need to relate to God as his child and how we can take confidence that this has happened. God the Father is a good father. And so I'm going to take a hard left-hand turn here, and I'm going to talk about the Abrahamic covenant. First, in 2 Timothy 2.13, it says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Even if we don't do our part, God has made promises. He will always do his part. He will always be faithful, for he cannot disown himself. So let me give you an example of the love of the Father that you may have not seen before. Why we see him as Father, who will never leave you, who will never deny you. He will never forsake you. He is loyal to you even when you fail him. He is a Father who protects you and provides for you. And he has made the most remarkable sacrifice for you out of his abundant love. If you turn in Genesis 15, verses 1 through 21, we see the Abrahamic covenant. This is the promises of God. I'm not going to read that section, but I am going to break it down for us here in these closing moments. The Abrahamic covenant is really what theologians say is the beginnings of the formal revelation of the covenant of grace. We see God's decision here to reach into humanity and specifically save a people for himself. We could say his children. Abraham. Abraham was a son of an idolater. Did not know God. But God takes the initiative. God calls him into a relationship with himself, and he promises, he makes these promises to Abraham. And the tenets of the promise is this. He's going to make Abraham a great nation. He's going to bless Abraham and make his name great so that he will be a blessing. He will to bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him and all, get this, all the peoples on earth would be blessed through Abraham. Why? Why are all the people on earth blessed through Abraham? Because through Abraham, remember, He is the beginning of the Jewish people. Through Abraham comes the Messiah, the Christ, our Savior, Jesus who takes away the sins of the world, God's redemptive plan through history that is work at this very moment. We don't have time today to develop the entirety of the covenant, but I want you to see that God is a Father who says, I know you're weak. I know you can't pay the rent. I know you're but dust. You can't meet the standard. So I will pay the price for you. He's a father who will literally lay down his life for you. He, God, makes these promises to Abraham. And in verse 8, Abraham says, quote, How can I know? In other words, help me to trust that this will come to pass. 
Then in verse 9, God says to Abraham, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a pigeon. What is this? What's going on here? Historians, archaeologists, and theologians tell us this is an ancient Near East cutting rite. It's a way of signing a contract. It's not written, but an oral storytelling culture, it's a graphic pronouncement of saying, if I don't fulfill my part of the bargain, if I don't fulfill my promises, may it be done to me, has been done to these animals. In verse 10, Abraham goes to work without instruction. He knows what this is. He's killing and cutting the animals. Separates them into pieces to prepare to walk between them through the dead creatures. He knows. He knows this is a contract, a covenant that says, I, may I, be led to the slaughter. May my blood be spilled. May my flesh be torn. May I be cut off. May I be destroyed. I will be judged and sentenced to this suffering if I don't live up to my promise. This was, quite honestly, acting out the curse. The curse of not keeping their legal obligation. Not performing. Not being faithful. Or if I fall short. So I want you to see in your mind's eye this ceremony, both parties of the covenant. They were both to walk through the pieces. And here's the amazing thing about the love of God our Father. Because in verse 12 it says, As the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep. And a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. This is a darkness that was terrible, frightening, overwhelming. Crushing. In verse 17 it says, When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared, and it passed through the pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Smoke and blaze. The same image that we see with God leading the Jews out of Egypt, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Again, Tim Killer says these are the same words used to describe the top of Mount Sinai. When God came down on it, the same words used to describe the pillar of God's presence, his raw Shekinah glory. Sometimes looked like smoke, sometimes looked like fire, but it was always severe. It was a presence of the Lord God Almighty. And this, this is shocking. But it's not just the sight of God's presence. What is shocking is the meaning of God moving through the pieces. He was saying, may I be humbled and lowered to this level. May I know the pain and the wounds of suffering. I will be, or I will condescend to be powerless. May I be forsaken. May I be forsaken if I don't live up to my promises. Promises to be your father, to bring salvation to the world. Here's what's so stunning, so stunning about our God, our God the Father. Abraham knew that God would live up to his promises. He knew that. He experienced God. He knew he was faithful. Problem is this. Abraham's problem and our problem is our inability to keep our end of the covenant. Our performance. We don't have the ability. We can't pay the rent, in other words. We are doomed. And here's the gospel. This is the good news. God said, I am walking through the pieces For the both of us. I am taking the curse for you. If I, God the Father, don't fulfill the covenant, may I be cut off. But you, my child, my child, if you don't, 
If you don't fulfill the covenant, I will take the curse for you. I will be cut off. If you don't fulfill your end of the bargain, I will bless you, even if I must take your punishment. Do you see the gospel? Do you see the good news? Because centuries later, darkness fell on Jerusalem. It fell over the whole land. And Christ Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he was led as a lamb to the slaughter. He was humiliated. His flesh was torn. His blood was spilled. He took the suffering that was mine. That was yours. Isaiah 53, 8 says this. For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transactions or transgressions of my people, he was punished. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are the good, good Father, the perfect Father. And Lord, we just, we ask you to guide us and lead us. Help us to be obedient, Lord. Help us, Lord, that not only in that obedience that's done out of love, Lord, but that we see that you that you love us with such a great love that you've lavished on us, that you've taken the curse, you have set us free from the bondage of sin, and we can come before you boldly and confidently, knowing that you hear us and that you receive us as your very own. Help us, Lord. Help us that that we see that you love us, that you have revealed your Son, Jesus Christ, to us. And in that, Lord, that we can do your work, not out of performance, Lord, but because we have been accepted and we belong to you in Jesus' name. Amen. As we move into the celebration of the sacrament of communion, I think it's fitting that we all take a a few moments to reflect on on the meaning of the elements, what what the bread means, what the wine means, the significance of the sacrifice that Christ made at Calvary's cross. The sacrifice that changed everything forever. Uh, it, it led to a forgiveness of our sins. It led to eternal fellowship with the Father. Uh, the greatest gift that, that mankind has, has ever received. So why, why don't we just take a moment in our hearts and go before the Lord. If there's anything on your heart that's keeping you from uh, fellowship with the Lord, just lay it at the foot of the cross right now. If, If there's something that needs to be said, or if you just need to listen to what the what the Lord has for you, let's just take a couple of minutes and do that right now. very last Passover meal that our Lord would share with his friends he took a piece of bread he gave thanks to God and then he broke it and he passed it around saying take and eat for this is my body that has broken for you let's take the bread And in the same way, he took the cup of wine. 
And he told his friends, Drink, for this is my blood that has been shed on your behalf. Take the cup. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the precious gift. We thank you for the broken body and the shed blood. We thank you for the gift of freedom in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the promise of eternal fellowship. Lord, let your Holy Spirit guide us. Let, it, let the Holy Spirit inform every decision that we make, every word that we say. Lord, in his peace we remain. Amen. Out of the ashes we rise There's no